Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Understanding Nutrient Cycling and Soil Tests, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Ray Ward founded Ward Laboratories in 1983 and has been analyzing soil, plant tissue, manure, and more ever since in an effort to help farmers and ranchers make informed decisions about their operations. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we catch up with Ray at the 2019 National No-Tillage Conference, where he delves into nutrient cycling. Getting into the nitty-gritty on nutrients that are removed from a field during harvest or foraging, he stresses the importance of replacing carbon and other essential nutrients via organic matter decomposition, manure, or fertilizer application. In addition, he talks about some of the differences between the standard soil test and the Haney test, why water-extractable organic nitrogen is so important, how many people confuse oxygen deficiency with nitrogen deficiency, and much more. 22 years, but we were out of Nebraska before we moved back to start our business. And even in, in 1983, it was pretty much tillage. I even thought at that day that you would have to just really till ridge till because the ridge till get hard. And, and uh, after a guy who had been ridge tilling seven years, and I went with, and I would carry my soil health tool with me all the time, a tile spade, and dug in the soil, and I couldn't believe how good it was. And it didn't make any sense because I thought it'd be harder than heck. And uh, then Dwayne Beck started bugging me. Dwayne Beck and I had the same major professor at South Dakota State University, and his only two PhD students he had. I started the irrigation research farm at Redfield, South Dakota. Beck closed the irrigation station at Redfield, <laughs> South Dakota. So on and on, and, and Beck says that Carson got through with me, and he decided he could attempt it one more time, and they took Beck. So that's, uh, but, but in 1992, is on September 19th, 1992, was when I got converted. Uh, Martin Jorgensen and, and Don Rakowski mentioned Brian as Martin's son, that, that uh, they're the ones that convinced me that we need to do things different and started. So when do we need nutrients? What do the soil tests say? Uh, and uh, what does the soil health say? So we've got two different things we're gonna talk about, the fertility, from just regular standard soil testing and then from the Haney test. So I'm gonna talk about both of those. Soil tests are taken from the top six to eight inches soil. And, and when we talk about testing, I read too many articles where the guys say, well, you're in no-till, take a zero to four inch sample. Well, in understanding the soil tests, the universities did all this calibration work in the 50s and 60s. And, and that was the plow layers, what we, and that was six inches, Nebraska was probably had good soils. They could plow eight inches deep, so they, we, they went sampled zero to eight inches. So I say six to eight inches. 
And if there's something different, the tests are gonna be different. If you want interpretation from the university guidelines, you need to have a sample that's six to eight inches deep. Because we know there's more fertility in the top two inches than there is in the, the, top, the bottom two inches of that depth. And then the Haney tests to be the same testing sampling as you do for regular fertility. Nutrient cycling versus fertilization. Plants take up essential plant nutrients and many others. And when the crops or forages are harvested, those elements are taken from the land. So anytime you take something off the land, you're hauling nutrients off. And, and it's just that kind of that simple. And I, I don't know if, if people understand that. Commercial fertilizer application becomes necessary when all the nutrients removed are not replaced with animal waste, bio waste, or, or any other thing, because if we keep extracting, we're going to get, we're going to deplete the soil. I grew up in southeast Nebraska. I have a, an old soil map. In 1889, the corn yield in Sling County, Nebraska was 48 bushel. 1889, inbred or, or varieties of corn, no hybrids. And I graduated in the middle 50s, 1955, from high school. And the average dryland corn yield in Saline County, Nebraska, 1955, was nine bushel. That's the average. And then in 56 was eight bushel. And the guy said, well, those are dry years. So I went back and looked. After World War II, when the kind of hybrids are coming in, the top yield was 26 bushel. We started at 48, got hybrid corn, we're down there. And that's what organic farming did. Because all we did was tilled, cultivated, pitch the manure out of the barn. We always knew where the manure went because that was better cropping. And, and so we, we, and we got the nutrients out of the organic matter by, we tilled it, stirred it up, so it mineralized those nutrients out of there. And now we're trying to build organic matter and do a whole bunch of things. So it's very interesting to me. Biosolids manure contains all the plant nutrients because the plant nutrients were in that stuff that we ate. All the stuff we're eating here, plant nutrients in there. And what do we do with those plant nutrients? You know, we crap them out. And, and the animals do the same thing. Now, most of the, the animals are growing or trying to produce more meat. So they do retain less than 10% of the nutrients. The rest of it's in the manure or the biosolids. So think about, about that part. And then the fertilizer contains only one or two of those nutrients. So sometimes the guy says, I put manure on and I got much better yield than I did if I just used fertilizer. Well, maybe you're short of a micronutrient that's been taken out. Been taking them out for 140 years, haven't put any back. We gotta think about that kind of stuff. If livestock graze the crops or forages, the elements remain in the manure, it's put back on the land. First pass through, it'd be not very good distribution, but over time it would be pretty good distribution. So if, we're, if we put cattle on and grazing as part of your cropping system, then you're gonna need less nutrients because while the animals are eating it, you're not hauling those nutrients off, they're staying there. If the crop or forage is fed to the livestock on off-site, the manure must be returned to replenish the nutrients. So that's just kind of simple stuff. Well, how much is in the crop? And so this is corn, macronutrients, 0.67 pound of nitrogen per bushel. That's kind of the average. Incidentally, if you went on the, the website IPNI, which is International Plant Nutrition Institute, for about six months yet. And then, uh, but they have a table in there. They have a calculator where you can look up the table. Many different crops for NPK and sulfur. 
And so you can get these for your, your kind of crops. And I, I use the corn, uh, phosphorus 0.35 pound per bushel. You can just kind of see how much is taken off of 240 bushel corn. If you're doing that every year, uh, you, you've got a lot of nutrients that you need to think about putting back on or replacing. The soybeans, soybeans are legume, fix its own nitrogen. So if you wanted to get some free nitrogen, grow soybeans and just let them decompose out there in the field. You got 238 pounds of nitrogen and 70 bushel beans. So the legumes fix a lot of nitrogen. And contrary to what a lot of people think that the, the nitrogen's in those uh, nodules, or the bacteria in the nodules, the rhizobia fix the nitrogen that the plant brings up and puts in the leaves and the stalk and the stem and the seeds. So the nitrogen's in that top part that you're producing there, not in the, not in the nodules. So the more, you, more legume you can produce on top, the more nitrogen you're gonna get returned. Phosphorus, 0.54. Soybeans use more potash than corn, so 84 pounds of potash has been taken out of there. Uh, sulfur and zinc on that. Uh, wheat, we talk about, some people talking about putting wheat in a rotation, whatever it is, there's nutrients in those, those kind of things. So we gotta kind of remember when we're taking the grain off, that we're taking those things off. And then the other part is, well, here's some trace elements. And then Don Rakowski listed a whole bunch of other things that are in the plants that aren't essential plant nutrients. But it could be important for animal nutrition or, or for human nutrition. So we really got to start looking at more than just essential plant nutrients for making healthy food. And when you think about what, what are we doing as farmers is they're trying to grow food for people. That's what it comes down to. There's not, and then, we're, of course, we're making some alcohol so people can drink it or, or you can drive with it. But, but uh, the other part is we've been taking these nutrients out and we haven't placed them, replaced them. And then the other point is the, the corn stalks or the wheat stubble or whatever forage you're taking off has nutrients in it also. And, and those, are, those nutrients there you can see per pound that I calculate. 240 bushel corn probably has about 6.7 tons of stover. So you take 6.7 times 18 or times 40 and begin to see how many nutrients it'd be if you took the whole thing off there. If you, if you leave the stalks there, that goes back in the soil and microbes put it back. So uh, what kind of yield do you get with a phosphorus test of five part per million? And when I talk phosphorus normally, on a standard test, it's a Malik 3 colorimetric test. Malik 3 is an Adolf Malik, was in North Carolina. And, and uh, we have a colorimetric test that develop, measures orthophosphate only. And we have an ICAP test that measures organic phosphorus and uh, some other phosphorus in addition to ortho. So, so I've always, we run the, male, uh, the colorimetric test. Now, a five part per million is pretty low. The, the, color, the universities have that as very low test. So I'm pretty sure we need to put phosphorus on there. At 40, do you need phosphorus? And probably not. If, if, if the crop price is really terrible, you could skip a year and a soil test not gonna change very much and, and uh, you, you could get by without any. Or, and, and so then you go to the, put a cover crop in and, and then you don't put any phosphorus on and then you can brag, well, the cover crop released that nutrient for me. Well. I never hear of these stories, but I'd look at the soil test. Sometimes they're too high. We got around feedlots or around dairies, you'll have high phosphorus, high potassium, high tests, because the nutrients 
or being or the manure's been put back on there with those nutrients in it. So that's a good you get a good yield, and probably I always always got weasel words. I used worked at the university for 16 years, so I uh, so probably no loss if you don't put any phosphorus on. And on our farm in southeast Nebraska, I will not put phosphorus on when it's that high. And, and so the most important parts of that is oxygen and biological activity. And, and uh, the roots are just like us. They breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. For the roots to grow, they have to breathe in oxygen and then the, with the cell, where they develop cells, and then the cells elongate, and that's what pushes the root forward. So at the root tips, is where growth is going on, and then root hairs come out on the root and increase the absorption for water and nutrients. And if there's no oxygen, the roots don't, the cells don't divide, and the roots don't expand, and so you get no root hairs, you get no nutrient uptake. So you have these real wet areas that turn, the crop turns yellow and not growing. A lot of people say, well, that's nitrogen deficiency. No, it's oxygen deficiency. So you really have to keep that and when they, when they showed the crusting and sealing and all those things that restrict air, restricts oxygen in the soil. And the microbes need oxygen. Now, the other thing is that I'm learning these things that's kind of hard to imagine. You know, we talked about nitrate, the plants take up nitrate, they take up phosphate, they take up potassium. Well, Liz Haney, with Rick Haney's wife says, if plants only took up minerals, mineral elements, how does a herbicide work? Because the plant takes up a herbicide and kills it. So if the, if the plant can take up a, a herbicide, it surely can take up an organic compound. And those organic compounds are produced by the microbes in the soil. And so the more microbial life we have in the soil, the more they're solubilizing things and bringing it to the plant root to be released for the plant to take up. So, the, so those two things, and of course you understand temperature, you have to have that, but I thought, I put that biological activity in there because that's very important. The other thing I want to say about nutrients, people are wanting to increase organic matter. Every 1% organic matter contains 11,000 pounds of carbon, which translates in about six and two thirds inches of soil, more two million pounds of soil. That translates to 20.2 tons of carbon dioxide. But there's a group looking at how can we get paid to put carbon in the soil. And, and so these are, these are what you want. But it contains 1,000 pounds of nitrogen. So you increase a, a organic matter 1%, percent where that 1,000 pounds of nitrogen come from? It's not fertilizer nitrogen. It has to go through the microbial system and, and the living system in the soil. So that puts that in there. And then 220 pounds of phosphate, 100 pounds, 140 pounds of sulfur, and all the other plant nutrients. So if, you, if you're lacking a nutrient in the soil, and the microbes taking that nutrient out of organic matter to, to give the plant, how do you build organic matter? So a lot of the guys that build organic matter start with manure applications because they're getting all the nutrients out there and that kind of thing. And sometimes when you listen to them, in, in this morning, Haas and your Dan said one time that they started with a heavier rate of manure on starting it. So, so these, are, these are kind of secrets to some of this. So when a guy says, I increase my organic matter, one percent in three years or something. I said, where in the hell do you get the thousand pounds of nitrogen? You know, number one. So these are the kind of things I think about when I hear things. Uh, the respiration test that Haney has, 
I think this is probably the most important part of the soil health Heaney test, is that we have 40 grams of soil and we wet it, and then well, we, when we get the soil in, we dry it at 110 degrees Fahrenheit overnight, and then we grind it, kind of kill all the microbes in the soil, and then we bring, a, bring that soil in, we wet it, so a few of them come back to life, and they start eating their buddies. And the more buddies there are, the more CO2 is released. So the higher the respiration test is, the more microbial activity you have in that soil. And, and uh, as, as Lance, my manager of the bio-testing says, you want to start a fire, you start with little sticks, and you put those in there. As a, as a fire grows, you put bigger sticks in, and when it's really going, then you got to put big logs on there to keep it going. So in the, in the soil life and the soil, you start with in the cover crop, maybe the brassicas and some of those things that feed, feed the soil and they decompose easily. And when you get that life going, now you've got to put bigger, bigger logs in there, which would be the carbon, the sedan grass that grows to 10 feet tall or something like that to kind of keep that thing going and supply. So a good number, 60 to 120, is what we say there on the Solvita test or the CO2 burst, uh, respiration test. And we'll get them up three, 400. I think maybe even higher than that. So, so we can get some really good activity. And the second part of the test is uh, the water extractable food. We call it carbon. And, and uh, the microbes live in the water films around the soil particles. And so the carbon that's in that water film and the nitrogen in the water film, now nitrogen is a protein, the carbon is a food, and the more you have that, the more support of that microbial life you can have. And so we look at the water extractable carbon, a good number, 150 to 300, probably go up to 800 or so on some things. Uh, the uh, percent MAC is a microbial active carbon. We calculate that. And I got an example here is 42. And we say we like to see that between 20 and, uh, and 80. I see tests once in a while that are over like 120 or 140. That means that the, the Microbes eating up the carbon faster than you're producing it. So we want it in this range. If it's, if it's less than 20, that means you have no life in the soil. It's not eating the carbon. And if it's over 80, you're eating it up too fast. So these are the two things that I think is probably the most important in that Haney test as far as following a soil test and, and doing a nutrient cycling. So in, in, when we went down to see Haney about running this test, I said, where's pH? He said, Ray, I, I think I can tell that from the the other tests, and I told Lance, I'm putting pH on that report because I can't look at a soil without knowing what the pH is. And, and then we're on organic matter, got those two things that we've added to the Haney test that, that he doesn't report. But ideal pH, 6.2 to 7.2, moderate acidity, 5.4 to 6.1. If it's less than 5.4, you better be liming. Now, some of you guys would lime even at, at above that. In Nebraska, lime is so high cost that we kind of wait until it gets down there pretty bad before we do anything. And then if it's alkaline, you know, if it's above 7, 8, we've got serious problems on calcareous soil, and lime, lime, or uh, iron chlorosis and those kind of things. So ideal pH, uh, residual nitrate, we run uh, residual nitrate in almost every sample that comes in, and nitrates are soluble, of course. And we, at the end of the season, we get a lot of our samples in after harvest in the fall, we want that nitrate test less than five part per million. That means that you've done a good job of managing your nitrogen. 
When we get one in, it's a, a 200, like 200, it'd be a, like 50 part per million, you got 200 part per mil, or pounds of nitrogen in the soil. Something's the matter, we did something wrong. So we want that down. And I'm thinking about reducing the five down to two or three, because we've got a lot of farmers really doing a good job on nitrogen management now. And this is the way to tell if you've done a good job. Excess nitrate encourages bacteria over other microbes. And so I had an example of, the guy said, of my, I've been no-till in five years and my ground just got harder than heck. He was trying to disc it, it burned, his crop burned up. And I didn't ask him why he was trying to disc, but he said it was really hard. And so I looked, he had a CO2 respiration test of about 125, which is pretty good. And the, and the water-soluble carbon is just over 100, which is, to, to me, said, you're running out of food. And then I looked over, and his nitrate was 66 part per million, 150 pounds of nitrogen in six inches soil. And, and so the bacteria, they love nitrogen. So they take that nitrogen in, and they have a really narrow carbon-nitrogen ratio. So it demands a lot of carbon to keep that nitrogen in there. And so they're eating up that water-soluble carbon and the next thing they eat are the glues that hold the sand, silt, and clay particles together in what we call aggregates. And when that, when that falls apart, now you've got a hard soil because it's just sand, grain, sand grains, silt grains, and, and clay grains. So, that, so, so to maintain that good soil structure, we have to have a good microbial life in the soil. So then the, the other part of the Haney test is this H3A extract, which are three organic acids that plant roots leak out. And, and if you've heard people say, you know, the photosynthesis is fixing the carbon and the plants are leaking the uh, carbon out into their soil to feed the microbes. And I've heard 40 to 70% of the carbon dioxide that is fixed by the photosynthesis is leaked out to feed the microbes in the soil. But these are three of the acids and Haney said there's about 90 different ones that, that the plants leak out. So this is the extracting solution for doing the, the nutrients. The H3A, don't get uptight about that, that's Haney, Haney, Hosner, and Arnold. And so, so it's not any chemical that's uh, there. Ammonium, that's uh, a number is much, usually much lower than nitrate, but, but uh, we don't analyze ammonia in our regular soil tests, and Haney's doing that. So that's part of his game to, to analyze a little more nitrogen to get the nitrogen uh, reduced. And then the total nitrogen, he subtracts the, the, the nitrate and ammonium out of the total nitrogen to get organic nitrogen. And we call that uh, W-E-O-N, organic nitrogen. And uh, you really see that 40 to 60%, but the organic nitrogen that's in that soil solution is nitrogen that will be mineralized by the microbes to release to the, to the plant or to the crop if the carbon-nitrogen ratio is less than, less than 20 to 1. And so most of the time that's going to be there. So here's a good value between 20 and 200 pounds of nitrogen. Well, my God, if you had 200 pounds of organic nitrogen being released, that uh, you wouldn't have to uh, put any nitrogen fertilizer on. And you could be assured of that. And I know there's probably a lot of doubt in that. When I tell a farmer you don't need to use any nitrogen because he's got high residual nitrate, it gets real quiet on the phone. Then when they say, well, I'll reduce it, that's a, I say, that's a good thing. You know, utilize it, it's in there. We'll come back to Ray's talk in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. 
from many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet your harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Ray Ward as he discusses how his lab makes nutrient recommendations and answers questions from farmers about how calcium, phosphorus, and magnesium relate to soil pH. So how do we make the recommendation then? And I, we, I got these little ranges, but I use 1.1 pound of nitrogen per bushel for corn, subtract out the nitrate, and then that's the way I make the recommendation. Haney would take the 1.1, Subtract out the nitrate, subtract out the ammonium, subtract out the organic nitrogen that'll be mineralized, and then that lowers the nitrogen recommendation. So, so I think it works pretty good. I really, really think that you can be assured that you you won't hurt yourself by reducing that nitrogen with a Haney test as it's developed there. And in this case, uh, the goal ought to be I got here 6.67 pound of nitrogen per bushel. And that's 161 pounds, and we're saying it takes 1.1 to grow a bushel. That leaves us 0.43 pound of nitrogen left over after every cropping season. Now, have we wasted 4,300 a pound per bushel that we could save if we didn't put it on? You know, so why would you want to put more nitrogen on than the crop is going to take off? So you can contaminate the surface water or the groundwater. It's a, it's a strange kind of question. And we know that we can't account for all the nitrogen or some goes off in the air, but we need to learn how to stop that too. So, so we can utilize this and you know, make it efficient as possible. So, so that, that's the one point I want to make on, on the fertilizer recommendation. How do, how do I be safe to put on uh, just 0.67 pound per bushel? How, how, and and uh, these, are, these are the questions we're working on. And guess what we're getting from the researchers? That's why I'm asking the questions. So, so there's a, a cover crop cycling, nutrient cycling. And uh, in this case, 1.4 tons of dry matter. So there's 1,200 pounds of carbon in there. And you can see the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur. Those are... Those are taken up into that cover crop, and then that's going to be released for the next crop. And that's the idea we're recycling some nutrients up. But, but so you can recycle some nutrients up, but you're still taking nutrients off when you harvest. So, so you can follow those, the, the amount that's being taken up by doing soil tests and monitoring how the level's changing. And some guys say, I don't need to put any phosphorus on because I'm doing cover crop. And, and if my soil test is cha changing, going down, I think I'd want to put stuff on. If it's maintained because it got more efficiency, the idea is that the soil health, it should make our fertilizers more efficient so we don't have to use quite as much and kind of that. So th those are the kind of things I think about on, on these recommendations. Legumes, you guys got any other questions while we're going on? A couple of slides ago, you had how much nitrogen you needed for the crop, and you had wheat 2.4 pounds yeah. per bushel. If we used 2.4 pounds per bushel, we would have 100% of the wheat on the ground. I mean, it would yeah. be less. So, so this is hard red winter wheat. 
in, in Nebraska, Kansas. Sorry about that. I and, and we have, I think, 1.8 for the white wheat or the soft red winter wheat in the, in the east. So yeah, always, always because we've got this, the short stature of wheats now in the, in the plains. So that makes a lot of difference. In the, in the northwest, I think it's even higher than 2.4. Montana's about 3.2 on some wheat. So not 100 bushel wheat, or they are. Well, I, no, some of them are, but what well, scares the heck out of guys are the wheat recommendation sometimes higher than the corn recommendation. Yeah. And, and uh, so, and, and the tall wheats, I understand. And, and thank you for pointing that out. Okay, so phosphorus test. Right now, I'm thinking 25. If we're above 25, we don't need to put any phosphate fertilizer on. Maybe if you're growing 300 bushel corn, maybe it should be up to 40. But for our dry land and most of our cropping, 25. In Haney, I got it 18. But if I can get really healthy soil with a lot of microbial activity, can I lower those numbers? And that's, that's what I'm kind of thinking about. Because the soil tests the universities have calibrated were calibrated under conventional tillage, kind of quote, dead soil. And now we've got all this soil life in here and we haven't really given it the credit that we need to. So who does that? Who sticks their neck way out and does that? So these are things we, got, we really got to work on. So if you have a 25 part per million and we know what the crop removal is, I'm saying at that point, you only put on about half to 60% of crop removal. When you get down half of that number, then you put on crop removal. So if you put on crop removal at 25 part per million, you're gonna build a soil test in most, most of the areas that I work with anyway. So Haney has a couple of things, he calls it uh, H3A, inorganic phosphorus or the phosphate. And then the total ICAP phosphorus, he uses total, but it is not total. It's a total in that soil extract, that H3 extract. The total phosphorus in the soil, in our, in our molosols, uh, can be about 400 part per million, kind of an average. And that's P, and take that times 2.3 to get P205, and then you take that times two to get pounds per acre on the top seven inches of soil. So there's a lot of phosphorus there. And if you got a microbe that can dissolve that appetite fast enough, you, wouldn't, you could go a long, long time without. But I don't think that microbes can dissolve it fast enough to do that. But, but you can supplement it some and, and still grow good yields. Ammonium acetate we, uh, for potassium, 160 part per million, and then 80 if it's a Haney test. And uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, guys in Illinois wrote a paradox of potassium paper, and nobody knows what's going on. And so if you need to track it, and if you got 160 part per million, you, you probably feel pretty good about that. As the scientist said, we don't know much about it. When, when it right come down right to it, we don't know the reactions. Sulfur test, 13 on our, we do a malic three extract on sulfur. The Haney test to be five part per million. Kind of, kind of values, I think. We have no free sulfur anymore, really to speak of. Maybe around some of the industrial plants you do, but we used to get a lot of free sulfur and we don't get that out of the atmosphere anymore. Thank God we got nice clean air, but uh, so we, need, we really need to think about sulfur. And the sulfur just makes your nitrogen more efficient because, uh, because the nitrogen goes into protein and sulfur goes in there. So some of the amino acids have sulfur in them to build protein. You have to have both those elements. So one of the guys this morning said that he has, he's got a 10 to one ratio of nitrogen to sulfur. 
you know, 10 to 1, 8 to 1 ratio, kind of where to think about on uh, your, your application. Now, in soybeans, uh, you wouldn't, of course, use that nitrogen on the soybeans, but sometimes you might want a little sulfur there. There's a whole bunch of things you could do. Zinc is a, is a big one in a lot of the area. And the DTPA test that Colorado State developed, uh, one part per million. And the Haney, the H3A, about a half a part per million. If you're above that, I'd save money. And on and, and a farming operation, I'm a, I'm a landlord, but I'm 50-50 lease, so I can, I can track all the costs. I pay the taxes, and the tenant pays the machinery costs. And hopefully, his machinery costs aren't much more than the taxes in Nebraska. But you know, our tax is 43 bucks an acre on dry land. And, and so you've heard about Nebraska and their taxes. And in copper tests, 0.2 and, uh, and uh, 0.17 on the Haney test. Copper is kind of an interesting one when you go to the no-till kind of thing in the northern, like in North Dakota and then the provinces. High organic matter, cooler temperatures, uh, copper deficiency on a lot of the grains. And so I don't, and I haven't really worried about, about it in most places, but on some of the sands in Nebraska, we have uh, low copper. And, and does it, don't really know if it helps or not, but, but that's one we watch. Manganese and iron, I don't worry about too much. Just to show the picture of the, of the cover crop here uh, growing again, this is on our farm in southeast Nebraska. But this is one of the things that's fun to, to dig. And sorry, that metal part over there is uh, my spade. But I dug this up, and I got night crawlers in there, and there's a worm in there. And you can see a little root growing. The root's coming out of those worm holes. And, and uh, it's just fun to go out and dig and see these things. And, and if you have to, you dig in yours, and then either you go to the neighbor's doing a good job or the neighbor's doing a bad job and dig in his. So you got some calibration. And, and you, have to, you have to really calibrate your hand to feel that and all that stuff. Because I, I've been, uh, started at South Dakota State in 1961, and I've carried a spade with me all the time. And, and it's the best soil health tool I got to kind of follow what's going on that you can observe. And uh, then this one here, this is the top of the soil. And you kind of see a line right through here. And to me, that's the soil I've grown in 25 years in no-till. So Keith Thompson, that's around, uh, I, we're on a bus trip and I said to Keith, I think, I think our soil's building at the top. And he said, well, Darwin figured that out. He, and, and Keith sent me a paper, 1881, Darwin wrote a paper on artifacts sink in the soil because worms are bringing soil up to the top. And so, but think about what we're trying to do. The guys are getting more organic matter and all, and the soil is getting deeper. What you know, it's it's on top. You're building it on top. So you you go out and observe that. So you pull the trash away. You can see the worm castings there. And you imagine how that goes on over time. And, and I may, I'm not probably as near as good as Gabe Brown in some of his operation, but uh, at least I can, I can see that. And you can break those things apart. And then you, if you've seen Ar Ray Archuleta or some of those guys do the slake test, I can put that clod in there. And two days later, it's still there in that water. Where, the, where, at our, where we live in Kearney, we have, uh, well, they 
push the soil up against the gated pipe and then they take it back out to, when they're getting ready to cut the corn. And so I just took a sample there and it flakes off in about 15 minutes, it's gone. It's just because of that, that this stuff here, building this structure. And then uh, this is that ammonia test. So I, so I was changing the field and we had a cornfield and we're going back to corn and part of it and soybeans on the other part. So we put ammonia on and then I just went to, found a line. I went about this way, took 10 probes out each way. And I tried to miss ammonia marks. And so I, I, here's ammonia in here and we're using about 120 pounds of nitrogen. Biomass, no ammonia, 2000, ammonia 1200. By the diversity, 1.1 to 1.0. The bacteria, because this is so much lower, the bacteria percentage is higher here. And then we get down here, fungi, no mycorrhiza, no protozoa. I don't have, I've had no rhizobia either, and that's not in there, but, but I decided after we did that, and I know it's not replicated, it's just how farmers do stuff, you had one sample. But uh, now we're using 32%. And, and then I, I took, uh, yeah, this is, these are the ratios on that PLFA. Fungi to bacteria ratio 0 0.03, 0 0.02. And then all prey, there's no protozoa in there to eat stuff, to release the nutrients. And then a gram positive, gram ne negative ratio, 2.8, 3.2, and this should be kind of equal amounts. So, so the nitrogen, that high nitrogen, that goes back to the question, at, at that pan down in that soil with anhydrous. The, the bacteria eating all that, got that nitrogen eating all that carbon up and, and making it kind of hard. So I went out, I had a wheat field right next to the, this field and then cover crop in the wheat, I went back in November and took the sample. And, and granted the, the biomass is low because it was cooling down quite a bit, but look at the microbial diversity. And this is when uh, at 1.6, then Lance has that calibrated, it's very good. And then the fungi, the mycorrhiza, that had uh, this gram positive. Here's a ratio of the fungi to bacteria, 0.3. So if you can be really above 0.25 on the fungi to bacteria ratio with our kind of test, is great. It means that you got the mycorrhiza working to build the glues and, or the fungi building those glues. And, and then the gram positive, gram negative is in that one to two range, which is good. It means they're more balanced. And then we got a predator to prey. So as long as you got a number here, it's good because the protozoa are so much bigger than the bacteria. It's kind of hard sometimes to measure very many of them, but, but they're there, but they're not big enough to measure. So when we can measure them, when they're big enough to measure, we know they're in good shape and they're eating. The, it's kind of a crude, cruel world down there when you talk about it because they're eating each other all the time and, and reproducing very rapidly and eating and releasing. They take the nutrients in and release them so the plant can have them. And sometimes if a plant needs a nutrient, it'll send down a compound that will encourage that microbe to go get that nutrient. And it's called signaling. And, and, the, and the microbiologists sometimes talk about plants communicating with them. And I always say, how in the hell can they know that kind of stuff? And, and it just, it's just interesting to figure out that the plants know how to do this stuff. And uh, then, then the, if you have that multi-cocktail cover crop mix they talk about, and, and they said, well, the roots join and they trade stuff. And, and how do they do that? 
And then my kids gave me a book a year ago on, on soil, and little chapters by different scientists. And a, and a scientist, a forester, wanted to study the carbon in a, in a fir tree, and they covered this thing with plastic and injected carbon-14, carbon uh, CO2 is carbon-14, is radioactive carbon. And they started accounting for where the carbon is at in the tree, and they couldn't find all of it. And they finally found it in an aspen tree down slope. And they figured out that the trees are highly mycorrhizal, and the mycorrhizae connected the two roots, and they were trading this stuff back and forth. So it's the microbes that do the trading, not the roots themselves. So it just, well, for me, it's just, <laughs> just pretty exciting to do. So that's what you want that soil to look like. And this is when I was digging out there, I saw this, and worm activity, all those. This is in a soybean stubble. I think that might be all. If there's any time for questions, we can do that. Yeah. Uh, recently, I watched a YouTube video by Dr. David Montgomery, I believe it was, and he claimed that photosynthesis added 30%, 30, or 30% of the photosynthesis ended up in the ground. Right. Do you agree with that? I said 40 to 70. So he's maybe a little light, but it's hard for me to believe that stuff, but that's what they say. You know, is that how we get, is that, I mean, Dave Grant will tell you his soil test readings go up and he's not adding any fertilizer. Is that how it's happening? That's, that's how it's happening. The microbes, the plant is feeding certain compounds or certain microbes to dissolve those nutrients to bring to the plant. And, and uh, so they make it available and the roots grow in there to be able to take it up. So they say that if you have poor fertility, then the plant is sending lots of energy down to, to, for the microbes to find nutrients for it. So if you have better fertility, then they don't spend as much energy looking for nutrients and they grow, make more yield. So I think the, the, the secret is to have good fertility, all the fertility that, that the plant needs, and then uh, maintain that fertility there. Because we've got too many guys using too much fertilizer. You got, and we want those guys to cut back. And then we got some guys that don't use enough and they complain because their yields are never as good as the neighbors. And, and all you have to do is put a little fertilizer on and, and use, get this soil health going. So it's, yeah, you got a question back there? Yes. Um, does elevated calcium, does that affect your phosphorus level on your soil test? And also, how important do you think it is to have the right amount of plant available magnesium in terms of that phosphorus utilization? Because my, my experience has been, I can get a guy by with a lot lower phosphorus level on his soil test if he's got just the right amount of plants available magnesium. In Nebraska, we have, I think, 67% of our corn plant analysis this year was low in magnesium. And we got plenty of exchangeable magnesium in the soil. But I don't know how that's related to different things. So I can't, I can't answer the question of, the calcium does not interfere with the phosphorus soil test. The, uh, the, high, the calcareous soil, uh, and the Bray test, they don't work together. And, and, and so I had a long time ago when I was at Dodd City, a customer sent me a sample and I got one part per million running the Bray test. And he called and he said, we've been using 200 pounds, 1846 a year. The university's been giving us one and you're giving us one, what's going on? And why didn't he call the university? Why did he call me? That's always a question, but 
But uh, I said, I, I just met Adolf Malik when I was at Oklahoma State, so I said, Adolf's got a new test. It's called the Malik II at that time. And, and I run a Malik II, and the phosphorus test is 94. Calcium did not tie up the phosphorus. The calcium made the Bray test no good. It's just, and, and so there's so much in the books written in the books and everywhere like that, that the calcareous soil is not a phosphorus available problem, it's a salt test problem. And, and, and so, but the magnesium, I don't know your relationship with the magnesium. That's a, sorry. If you have a high pH though, your high calcium will tie up some phosphorus, I think, right? Uh, not really, no. no. Now, Paul Fixon, his PhD at Colorado State, had a soil with 20% lime in it, Four years later, alfalfa cereal responded to the phosphorus he put on. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that. Long term, yeah, but short term, no. I read for some university professors are saying that if you use cover crop, you, uh, your uh, soluble phosphorus uh, rate rises. How do you handle that situation? If, if you use a cover crop and the soluble phosphorus rises, it should show up in the soil test, either the Haney test or a regular fertility soil test. And you know, one is that uh, buckwheat will make phosphorus more available. And, and there's probably a lot of those kind of things going on, but, but the phosphorus soil test is a, is a pretty good measure of phosphorus is gonna be available to the plant. Now, at, at, what, at what level do you stop? You know, is it 25, 20, or wherever it might be? That's important to know that we don't know now, but uh, if the plant makes more phosphorus available, it's going to show in the salt test. Yeah. Should your calcium base saturation be? Uh, yeah. What should the base saturation on calcium be? And I said yes. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. Ohio State and McLean, Ohio State published a paper a long time ago with different ratios of calcium, magnesium, potassium. And there's a wide range. In the, in, the, in the Albrecht thing or the Bear thing, it was in Rutgers. Uh, those, are, those are old things that have been pretty well. Just look at the uh, look at pH first on the calcium. If the pH is right, you know, I wouldn't worry about my base saturation on those things. Anyway, I went to California, won a grape, grape deal and a tour, and, and, and it had serpentine soil. Serpentine soil is magnesium. Uh, mineral and uh, so I asked a guy, when do you worry about the calcium magnesium ratio? He said when it's about one part calcium to five parts magnesium, and and and, and here we say three to one, you know. So I think we got a big range. So worry more about pH and than that. And and then I'll say this that if your magnesium percentage is high, you have a clayey, sticky soil. And, and that's, I think the magnesium defines that more than being. And it, it is because we wash the topsoil off and we're farming the bee horizon. I've, because that's what our farm is, I got that kind of problem. Yeah. Your line uh, is the Haney test, how do you determine um, samples to take first? Is the, uh, if you're doing the Haney test, how many Haney tests should you take compared to regular soil testing? And, and my idea is that, you know, the grid sampling is very important for variable rate fertilizer application and all that. And I would think that maybe, maybe one to three Haney tests taken from different
kind of different soil test levels, or maybe one that's kind of an average, but, but the, the Haney test will give you the soil life in that soil, and the fertility gives you the, the levels, and so, so you can variable rate the fertilizer, but, but I don't think the soil life is changing that much in different parts. You have to have a good representative sample. And I always remind people that if you've got cows out there, you know there's urine and pies all over. But if you've got deer out there or whatever it might be, you don't know where they stop. And so you, so you always have to get a, you know, at least 10 probes put together to get a composite sample. How deep do you want it? Zero to eight inches is what I'd prefer. If you want to go zero to six, if you've got too many rocks, then you go zero to six. But you don't have rocks out there. But. What if you went deeper? The, the deeper, um, the fertility is less as you go down, in most soils anyway. And so if you go deeper, you get a lower test, recommendations are higher for maybe what you need. Because the salt has to calibrate on that six or seven inches soil. Thanks to Ray Ward for his insights into nutrient cycling and soil health tests. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.